So the classic definition of keratoconus would be of a chronic progressive and non-inflammatory ectasia of the cornea, which results in corneal steepening, apical thinning, visual distortion, and potentially the development of corneal scarring. Now in 2015, a seminal paper was published titled the Global Consensus on Keratoconus and Ectatic Disease, which provided what I would term a clinical definition of keratoconus that optimizes diagnostic sensitivity and specificity. So if we take a look at the uh, results of that particular paper, the authors indicated that there needs to be at least two out of these three findings, which would be considered mandatory findings to diagnose keratoconus. The first being an abnormal posterior ectasia of the cornea, the second being an abnormal corneal thickness distribution, and the third being clinically non-inflammatory corneal thinning. What are the main findings from placido topography that make you more confident that you're truly dealing with keratoconus? So with placido topography, it, although it only provides information on the front surface of the cornea, unlike tomography, which I'm sure we'll be discussing, it's still a very valuable tool in the detection of early keratoconus. And some of the key findings for me, which would be red flags for keratoconus include number one, asymmetry. So asymmetry in the cornea itself. So if you're seeing steepening, particular in the inferior half of the cornea, so you're seeing some warm colors, some yellows, oranges, and reds, on the inferior half of the cornea, that would be a number one red flag for keratoconus. Number two would be to look at the keratometry values themselves. So we know that in the normal cornea, the average Ks are in the low to mid 40s. So if we're seeing K values, I'd venture to say even 46, 47, and definitely 48 that you've listed here, that would be a sign also of keratoconus. And lastly, not only asymmetry in one cornea itself, but between the two eyes. So if you're seeing one cornea with much steeper K values than the other, that would also be a sign that you may be seeing keratoconus. Why is it that posterior corneal shape abnormalities, uh, why are they a critical element of defining keratoconus while anterior corneal shape is actually not even indicated as a mandatory finding in defining keratoconus? And also, what are the technologies we do have in clinical practice today to, to detect abnormalities of the posterior corneal shape? The reason why the posterior cornea is so important the way I like to describe it to eye care providers and non-eye care providers is, you know, generally speaking, like, like Gloria was saying, a cornea with keratoconus steepens with time. It gets steeper. And it's uh, a cornea also that with keratoconus generally thins with time. And that was point number two on the list that you had from the, from the Gomez study. And so you can't have a cornea that gets steeper and thinner at the same time without one surface elevating faster than another. And so what happens as we watch the cornea dynamically change with time, with the disease of keratoconus, the posterior side of the cornea elevates and moves forward at a faster rate than the front surface does. And there are many reasons why that happens. However, uh, we need to look at that back surface because the front, the, the first, in my opinion, the first change that starts to happen on a keratoconic cornea is the posterior side of the cornea starting to advance towards 
the front side of the, the anterior surface of the cornea. Measuring that elevation change and difference over time, especially, um, is critical to the positive, true diagnosis of the disease. Is the absolute measurement of the central corneal thickness or even the thinnest point on the cornea a sensitive way to detect keratoconus? Tell us why abnormal corneal thickness distribution is a mandatory finding in keratoconus. To speak about corneal thickness is, you know, very important in this disease simply because it, you know, obviously is a thinning disease, but included in that is also the weakening of the corneal tissue. When we talk about thinning specifically, um, there's a reason why we don't use a, uh, you know, an ultrasonic pachymeter to be able to measure these because if we're using a central uh, measurement, we could be missing where the thinnest point is, right? Um, so that's obviously why we don't use central. Now, the reason why we may not totally rely on thinnest point as well is because there are individuals who have relatively thick corneas but still display changes uh, in, uh, in the shape of the cornea, uh, specifically uh, increased corneal curvature. Now, those individuals who may have uh, corneal thicknesses that show micron values of greater than 500, um, those individuals have a more rapid change of the corneal thickness from that thinnest point to the periphery of their cornea, meaning that that rate of change is abnormal compared to a, a, a normal uh, population uh, distribution. Um, when we look at, you know, generally the, you know, the 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 paper uh, that we're we're talking about, um, rather one of the findings that we find in, in you know one of the papers that's looking at values of keratoconus. One of the very important values is that 500 micron thickness cutoff. Um, but we will find frequently that there are individuals above that that clearly have keratoconus. Uh, so looking at the thickness distribution in addition to, uh, you know, thinnest point is a very important uh, uh, factor to look at. So, John, you would agree, though, that not that infrequently we see in clinical practice keratoconic patients whose thin point of the cornea is statistically normal. And we also see non-keratoconic patients whose uh, thin point of the cornea may be statistically outside of the normal values. Would that be a true statement? Would absolutely agree with that. Great, thank you, thank you. Consensus finding number one. The top two criteria for evaluating keratoconus are abnormal topography and abnormal corneal thickness and distribution. So let's talk about some of the risk factors for keratoconus. So Mile, do you view keratoconus as a genetic disease? And if so, how do you incorporate that fact into your clinical approach when you care for a patient with keratoconus? With any condition that we see in clinical practice, it's always a combination of two things. One is genetic risk, and the second is environmental risk that we induce on the tissues that may cause progression or may cause the disease state. So when we're talking about genetics, we know that there is a variability in genetic risk. And that's something that an individual has that's inherent to themselves. That, unfortunately, we can't control. We may be able to understand it and leverage it to manipulate the environmental risks, but we unfortunately can't do anything yet to manipulate that. The only thing that we can do is modify those environmental risk factors that are modifiable risk factors. So if I hear you correctly, Mile, 
you're saying that keratoconus undoubtedly has a genetic basis. Absolutely. But that the environment can impact its expression. Is that, would that be a true statement? Absolutely, Barry. And to, to even clarify that more, somebody who has a lower risk, but, in higher, but higher environmental risk factors may develop the condition versus those individuals who may have slightly increased genetic risk with the absence of some of those environmental risk factors. So, so yes, 100% genetics absolutely plays a role. So eye rubbing has been indicated by some as a quote unquote cause of keratoconus. Do you see it as a primary cause or do you view it as an exacerbating factor? And other numerous comorbidities have been said to be associated with keratoconus. In addition to answering that first question, can you tell us what are a few of those comorbidities that you consider when caring for your patients with keratoconus? I always ask them about eye rubbing and allergies and asthma. If they have, it's not the normal eye rubbing, you know, just kind of gently patting your eye. It's that vigorous nickel into the eye eye rubbing. And there have been multiple studies that have looked at eye rubbing. Rabinowitz, he did a study that said that more than 80%, it was 83% of patients with keratoconus have eye rubbing. So when you see a patient, even if they come in and you can see the kind of eye rubbing that they're doing. Now, there have been different studies that look at, is it the chicken or the egg? Is it the cause or the effect? And I do think it plays a role. So as Mile mentioned, the environmental factors, which is why it's so important to address ocular allergy and atopy, which are also associated with keratoconus. So managing the ocular findings in all of our patients. But there are many different comorbidities that play a role. So including the eye rubbing, floppy eyelid syndrome, uh, mitral valve prolapse is one of them sleep apnea, we should really be evaluating all of our patients with keratoconus for sleep apnea. And, and with validated questionnaires, there are validated questionnaires for all of these things, which really help not only the ocular condition, but the systemic condition of our patients with keratoconus. So Gloria, in your clinical experience, have you noticed certain ethnicities where keratoconus seems to be more common? interesting question. And I think it's important for us as eye care practitioners to understand whether certain ethnic groups or racial groups may have a higher prevalence for keratoconus. And although there are many studies published around the country um, with different ethnic groups and racial groups that are present in the literature, first, I think the prevalence values may be slightly underreported due to accurate diagnosing. And second, even with all of those studies, I don't think that we can definitively say that there is a higher risk for keratoconus in any particular ethnic or racial group yet. I think we still need to um, look at more studies, more comprehensive studies and get better diagnostic technology out to make correct diagnosis first. first. But in terms of my clinical experience in Los Angeles, so I practice in a, a large city, there's over 12 million individuals here, and at a tertiary hospital where we really see a large uh, uh, number of patients in various ethnic groups, and we also take various insurances, Although I have not done an accurate retrospective chart review to look at the exact numbers, 
I feel that in general, I'm seeing keratoconus more commonly in white and Hispanic individuals, followed by Indian and African-American or black individuals. And interestingly, the group that I see keratoconus the least often in would be the East Asian group. So that is comprised of Chinese, Taiwanese, Japanese, Korean um, individuals. I really don't see it very much in the, that particular group. Anybody well, I'll chime in uh, from Northern California because Gloria, you're in Southern California and I would completely agree with you. And Hispanic tends to be my number one and Caucasian followed by African-American and totally agree that East Asian is very low in the number of patients that I see with keratoconus. Well, here in Chicago, I'm agreeing with Callie. So <laughs> that I, honestly is ex would have ex exactly been my answer from our clinical experience. I would generally agree uh, with all the statements. Um, I will say that we have our African-American population, black population, I would say, um, we tend to see uh, uh, a higher percentage, I think, than other areas. Um, I don't know why that is, but that, that is definitely the case. Um, I would definitely agree with what Gloria said in terms of the Eastern Asian population here. Um, we have a, a very vibrant Eastern Asian population within Washington. Well, we have an everything population in Washington, D.C., because uh, we have all the embassies and, you know, all the folks, you know, coming in from around the world. Uh, however, again, I don't, I agree with the West Coasters that the, the East Coast uh, is, is quite similar. So determining the progression of keratoconus has become critically important in light of our ability to halt or at least significantly slow down progression with the advent of corneal cross-linking. So getting back to you, Andy, I'm gonna ask you if based on your uh, traditional diagnostic methods, what are some of the red flags that would raise your antenna of suspicion for progressive keratoconus? I like to you know, harp on all my students that the most important part of the exam other than the history is the entering uncorrected visual acuity and the corrected visual acuity. So um, in a younger adult, I think someone who doesn't correct to a sharp 2020 um, that automatically sets up red flags about a lot of things for me. Um, the second thing, progressively, uh, you know, I know we live in the time of myopia management, but I, I've had a couple of uh, uh, Zinger patients where we've had colleagues of ours try to treat patients with myopia management because they thought they had progressive myopia, where their, myop or their sphere or their spherical equivalent was increasing over time, yet they actually had progressive keratoconus and not progressive myopia. And unfortunately, those those docs missed the disease for many years because they were putting them in ortho K lenses. So number two is progressive myopia. Number three, you know, I think um, if we don't have a topographer, no topographer. Number three, those those two greatest tools that we have in optometry, the old-fashioned retinoscope, uh, just to see what kind of uh, light reactions we're getting back at us, and then also our good old friend, like Gloria was saying before, the old uh, keratometer. Um, and even though Keratoconus is not a central three millimeter disease because it can happen obviously outside of those central three millimeters. Looking for those distorted mires um, is critically important as well. Um, and and you know there's there's many other things, but I think you know uncorrected visual acuity, not a sharp 2020 in a young person that's correctable, increasing myopia uh, and uh, light reflexes. However, they happen, whatever tool you use, where we don't get smooth, clean light reflex coming out of the eye.
after listening to what Andy just said, um, what comes to my mind is that most of these changes that Andy described will occur in keratoconus when it reaches a point to negatively impact vision and visual performance. So how does advanced technologies get us beyond that? So advanced technologies are gonna find physical changes far before you have visual impact. So these are gonna be able to pick up your subclinical uh, manifestations of the disease. Uh, if we take a look at various different metrics that we could look at, we could look at things such as uh, asymmetry in the corneal curvature of the front of the eye, looking specifically at IS ratio. That is a very highly sensitive uh, metric uh, to look at at just the front surface of the cornea. Again, we can look at the back surface and look at small variations in elevation. We can look at uh, overall corneal thickness, but more specifically, we can look at uh, individual layer thickness of the cornea. So we can look at thickness of the epithelium and even with uh, even higher resolution uh, imaging, uh, Bowman's layer thickness as well. And then to go even further beyond uh, what would be found on, on those clinical devices, we would look towards corneal biomechanics. So could we find uh, differences in the way that the stroma reacts to various different stimuli, are we finding that it is significantly weaker than an average cornea? And then further, we could look at risk scores uh, derived from uh, genetic uh, testing. Why are we more concerned about detecting keratoconus in younger patients? What are the implications of early onset keratoconus? What we do know is we know that the sooner we can catch it, the more manageable it is. Just like any condition in eye care. And what we found is that now the sooner we catch it, the more manageable it is through one, just simple lifestyle changes, two, the discussions of some of these advanced procedures that give us the ability to now halt the progression of this condition. We also know too that the younger anybody starts with any type of progressive disease, the more advanced it will likely become over the patient's lifetime. Take myopia, for example. If somebody starts at a minus two at four years old, they're going to develop more myopia than somebody who likely develops it at 10 or 12 or 14. So again, catching it sooner means that we actually potentially delay or forego the need for ever requiring any type of corneal transplantation. I mean, Corneal cross-linking has completely changed the way we communicate with these individuals. I was just talking to a 10-year-old earlier today and his mom. She has keratoconus and he has some early questionable findings. So, so it's one of those things that we're already starting to have these conversations earlier with these patients, knowing that we have ways to implement change. I think it's becoming increasingly important for us to identify this early in particular for those practices that are involved in myopia management and orthokeratology, because what you don't want to do is you don't want to treat somebody with orthokeratology who may be an early cone. You want to identify those individuals appropriately and then manage them appropriately as well and really start that education process as soon as possible. Saying that um, you know progressive myopia being a red flag is true, uh, but in our world where we're really starting to become much more sensitive to myopia management, we have to be able to clinically differentiate natural myopia progression from a disease like uh, keratoconus. And one of the key factors in my mind would be asymmetry between the two eyes, along with the presence of astigmatic 
asymmetric changes as well. That's why being able to have genetic testing in these myopes when you're differentiating between if they have keratoconus or early keratoconus or just myopia, and you're not sure, it's really nice that we're going to have this technology that will help make with our decision process moving forward. You know, we, we agree that naturally occurring keratoconus requires genetic predisposition. We also agree that there are significant environmental um, factors that can influence its expression. How do you counsel your patients in terms of controlling those environmental elements? Are there any specific general guidelines that you'll talk to all of your keratoconics about? Well, definitely the eye rubbing. So no eye rubbing, controlling any sort of asthma or atopy or inflammation. But I think we do need to talk about pregnancy because both my male and female patients ask me who have keratoconus um, if their keratoconus will worsen or they are asking about counseling for future children that they haven't had yet. That's actually a really common thing that comes up in our practice. And so there are studies and one I would like to highlight on pregnancy and keratoconus. So this was looking at 22 patients with bilateral keratoconus, 11 of the study participants were going to get pregnant and 11 were not. And in this study, it did demonstrate progression of keratoconus in all of the patients who became pregnant. And after birth, childbirth, they still had keratoconus without regression. So that comes into play. That's really important when we're talking about not only the genetics and how it plays a role for their future children, but counseling our patients during that time. And I do like to talk to all of my patients of females of childbearing age about pregnancy and how it could progress to offer cross-linking sooner rather than later, especially in this patient population. I think we need to rule out any sort of corneal ectasia or risk for corneal ectasia in every single patient who's going to have refractive surgery. And over the years, I think we've done a much better job at that compared to many years ago, but it's absolutely essential for the best outcomes. I think a lot of um, keratoconic patients go for refractive surgery because they want to see better and have LASIK and get it done with. And they just, glasses don't work. So let me go have LASIK. And then that's where they're told that you can't have LASIK, you have keratoconus. So I think a lot of people may actually diagnose keratoconus when they're going for their refractive surgery consultation. Consensus finding number two. 12 of 13 believe that it is extremely important to review keratoconus risk factors in every corneal refractive surgery candidate. Consensus finding number three. On average, 20% of corneal refractive surgery candidates have at least one risk factor of keratoconus. 10 of 13 believe that at least 10% of corneal refractive surgery candidates have at least one risk factor of keratoconus. Consensus finding number four. On average, approximately one in 400 LASIK procedures are performed on keratoconus patients who will develop signs and symptoms during the next 10 years. We all know that the classically referenced prevalence of keratoconus 
is about one in 2000. And this is based on a study that was published in 1986, which utilized relatively insensitive diagnostic criteria such as scissors reflex on retinoscopy and distortion of manual keratometric Myers. Now, subsequently, numerous studies have reported prevalence values that are not only much higher, but also these studies have shown great variability of prevalence rates between the studies. One of the most frequently referred to uh, studies recently published from the Netherlands was based on a data was based on data from a large health insurance database. More advanced diagnostic tools were utilized, such as corneal topography, and they found that keratoconus prevalence rates in that population was one in 375 individuals. The authors stated that their results found both prevalence and incidence rates for keratoconus that were five to 10 times higher than previous studies that had been published. If you look at a bunch of these studies and the, the tremendous variability from one to the other, one of the things that seems to come up are some of the differences in the populations that are studied, whether it's geographic areas that these populations come from and their genetic uh, ethnic uh, variations, maybe even age and so on and so forth. Uh, can you comment on that and uh, how that might play a role in some of these numbers as well? The studies are so um, different based on where they are. So the ethnic variations within different populations are really variable from place to place. I think from what we've learned and are learning currently, a, a younger age being studied is going to share more information about the studies. And say, looking at the Chan study from 2020, when where 85% of patients were white in this population, that tells us something different too. So there are so many variables and it would be really interesting, I think, to do a global study, including everyone in the world from different ethnicities and different backgrounds, but in a younger patient population and perhaps a really long longitudinal study. I think this is a dream, right? That is a great point and, and a, a good segue to something I wanted to mention at this point in our uh, discussions. And that is an ongoing a study that the International Keratoconus Academy is conducting on, in fact, a pediatric school-age population. Andy, would you be kind enough as president of IKA to kind of just give a, an overview of what we're doing? The discussion that we had initially was that um, there was never really a paper that established the prevalence and incidence of keratoconus in a pediatric population. And we thought that that was really important because um, while we know that this population gets affected by this disease, um, kids, generally speaking, don't get evaluated for keratoconus on normal pediatric eye exams. And so um, long story short, uh, we kind of put our, our uh, thinking caps on and said, hey, wouldn't it be great if? And so the wouldn't it be great if turned into the Illinois College of Optometry and a uh, school system within um, in the Chicago area where we had uh, devices that were donated so we can actually screen a population within a public school system. And that, uh, as you can imagine, we, we took that information and we evaluated it. Now, the unethical thing to do would be to uncover a kid in these populations. And I would say, generally speaking, um, socioeconomically, not, um, not 
um, not well off. And so we had kids of uh, you know different means, families of different means that, that were letting their kids be evaluated. But some of them turned up as having being positive for the disease. And so uh, we actually secured um, an ophthalmologist in the area that would actually cross-link those kids if, if, if they would turn positive and had progressive keratoconus. Um, so that's great. However, um, we, we took a good old fashioned look at a large population and I think we're well within the uh, 3000 scan range, if I'm not mistaken, um, of eyes. And, you know, we are, our prevalence that we're establishing at this point, there's no paper that's published yet because it's an ongoing study, is much, much, much more common than the one in 2000 that was established by the Kennedy study in 1986. And that's to say that all eye care providers, optometrists, ophthalmologists, uh, technicians, paras, everybody needs to be on the lookout for this population of patients that this disease exists. You know, I was taught um, keratoconus is the disease of the second to third decade of life. Wrong. It is not a, you know, we know that patients as young as five years old have presented with this disease. Um, we established this group, we established this study, and we're going to be hitting the table with some hard data that will likely, and what we wanted to, change the way that eye care providers evaluate kids um, for certain diseases that may or may not affect them um, at different prevalence rates. Remember, prevalence of a disease should really dictate how you perform your exam. The Oops. more prevalent the disease is, the more, the more, more uh, uh, important it is to, to look for that disease in that, in that population.